maybe from my personal point of view, honesty has always been the, the, the big thing. You're playing tennis, the ball's in or is it out? It's, you call it the way it really is. And the same thing in business was always the same thing, no matter how, what the cost was, you got to do this right. So you got to find honest people to deal with, to take you to where you want to go in, in business and also in the exit as well. I would think it'd be extremely important to know the people you're dealing with are good people. Welcome to the Cashing Out Podcast, where our fellow founders share real stories and offer honest advice around selling their companies to some of the top acquirers in the world. My name is Todd Sullivan, CEO of ExitWise, where we help business owners create the exits they deserve. Today, I want to do something a little different and share a story about an 82-year-old serial entrepreneur who is also a professional tennis player. I've known this person my whole life, and he helped shape my entire entrepreneurial career with his unwavering encouragement and lifelong words of wisdom when he told me, no one is ever going to give it to you. You have to fight for every point, every game, and every match every single day. And when he gave examples of great entrepreneurs and athletes that he remembers most, they were always the ones that succeeded with class and integrity. I hope you enjoy my conversation with my dad, Paul Sullivan. Pop, thanks so much for agreeing to talk to me and our listeners and taking us through your entrepreneurial journey. I know that your story of building multiple businesses and inventing sports products all while playing professional tennis, it's really fun for me to look back on um, because I know as a kid, we took all these things that we witnessed as your kids for granted from you know pro athletes at our door to your routine international travel for work. And it's really only now that we can appreciate all these efforts and sacrifices and really the influence that you had, particularly on me and my entrepreneurial career path. And I know our listeners are really, really going to enjoy this. So I really appreciate you being here. And actually, this is the first time we were going to bump Mark Cuban, but he just insisted that you take his spot today. So he's looking forward to this one as well. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> all right, buddy. This is going to be fun. I I hope I can do a good job for you. Yeah. Well, um, I think a good place to start would be, you know, take us back to when you were a kid in the basement and kind of the first time that you saw, I guess, really saw entrepreneurship in, in what your mom was building. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that's where it all started, I think. My, my mom was uh, really unbelievable. We're talking about back in the 1940s uh, when women didn't do these things. She started a business which started in our basement. We lived in a, uh, a three-family home. It was like two-story and then a, an attic and a cellar. And, um, and my mother started this business in the basement. My uncle and my, uh, my dad built sewing rooms, cutting rooms, design rooms in the basement, uh, all throughout the basement. Uh, and that's where it started, which is really, really quite unique. And she ended up to the point where she had a business all over the country and eventually actually went to China for uh, Macy's. They sent her to try sign China to do something. So this business uh, was called Edith Sullivan Tennis Creations, right? So she was That's correct, making yeah. tennis dresses for what, like the kids, originally the kids in the neighborhood and their parents? She was originally making dresses for my three sisters who were all great tennis players. And then it expanded from there and getting all the stores around the country to, to buy into them. And that lasted a, a, you know, forever. She was still trying to do business when she was 90. So yep. Uh, yep. <laughs> she was still at it. I remember it well. So, so that was a big influence. And then you, right, you were a tennis player. And, and at some point that tennis career turns into a business career. But why don't you take us through really going, starting to go to college, right? You had a decision because you were a tennis player and a baseball player, a decision to make. So maybe you can tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I really, baseball was great for me. Um, I love hitting a ball, running and feeling and everything, but turned out that tennis was the best sport for me. And I ended up uh, very fortunately uh, going to Harvard. And there I was, I was really quite naive but the one thing that held me together was tennis 
and squash as well. They uh, didn't have any indoor courts. We ended up playing squash in the winter. So at Harvard, tennis was only uh, really in the spring. We'd practice in the fall, play a little bit against each other. But basically, it was the spring. Had some great matches. We had great teams. This my sophomore year, uh, we ended up winning the New England Championships, Intercollegiate Championships, and then on played the Nationals and came in fourth in the country. So that was that was really fun. The uh, we ended up also going um, and combining with Yale, three players from Yale, three players from Harvard, and, and we went to to England and played. Uh, Eventually, against Oxford and Cambridge, we played there for six weeks. Stayed at Wimbledon. Yeah, um, it was really, really, really fun. Anyway, there was great tennis. Was good at Harvard, but remember, there's no indoor courts at the time. They came actually right after I left. So squash also added my my realm, and I had never picked up a squash racket in my my life. And the the coach, the tennis coach, was the same as the squash coach. And he said, oh, you got to play, you got to play. And I said, okay. So he started, he was a really good teacher in squash. And he just taught us basically how to keep the ball going and being really tough on the guys. Could compete, you know, we love to compete. We could, like, we all, most of us could really run. And um, that was our method of getting better and better. Sooner or later, at the, I started off like five on the freshman team and, End up the last match I played, I was playing number one on the uh, team that was the U- playing for the U.S. Open five man team. It was five man, five man team open tennis championships and uh, played the, remember the finals really well because we, we were playing the Canada in the finals. And um, I was playing pretty well at the time and won the match very quickly with some fun details, but forget those. And as I got off the court, the, the coach was waiting for me. He was all excited. And, you know, congratulations. Gave me a big hug. And, and I said, oh, thank you, Jack. Uh, here's, here's your racket. I borrowed the racket from him, actually, to play the match. And um, I said, here's your racket back. I'll never play squash again. Yeah. That was the truth. I never <laughs> did play it again. I went on to tennis on a full-time basis. Yeah, I love that, that you were pulled into that sport because the coach needed somebody and you used his racket the whole time and then handed yeah. it back and said, I'm, I'm done with this after winning, winning. Yeah, it was a great sport. It was, it was a good sport when you didn't have tennis to play. But to me, tennis was so much more artistic and I just loved it. I just loved it. So, so you graduate, right? You were captain of your junior team and your senior team on, on the tennis team. Right, right. And then, but that's not the end of the, of the tennis career. So what happens after, right after college? Well, at that time, the Vietnam War was really just brewing, really, really big problem. And a lot of my friends, you know, didn't want to join or they were trying to avoid the draft, but... I thought it was an obligation to go to uh, join the army, which I did. I joined the reserves. I thought that was the best course of action. I didn't have to stay there forever. Anyway, I was in there six months active duty and uh, then uh, six years of reservist duty, which is a couple of weeks a year, every week, once a week for years and years. Anyway, when I was in North Carolina uh, during the active duty, I was stationed at Fort Bragg. And one thing I, I managed to do is to get connected to business. I had a car. My sisters bought me a car and I had it there parked outside the base. And, and I had uh, a lot of my mother's tennis dresses in the car. And I would occasionally, when I could sneak away, I would go off and sell around North Carolina. And so it was. It was quite fun, and I never got, never got in trouble. Uh, close calls a couple of times, but never got in trouble. But that sort of got me back in the business as I was still in the army. But I wasn't able to play tennis, except the last uh, week of that basic training. I ended up. We were on bivouac for the last week or whatever it was, where you go out and you stay in the field and not very pleasant and. I mean, I'm there and everybody's there, all, all the, the whole squad is there. And all of a sudden, um, a Jeep rolls up 
And a guy gets out of the Jeep and he says uh, to me, the commanding general would, would like to see you. And I said, why? And, and he said, he, he wants to play tennis. So, <laughs> so they took me in the Jeep and I never returned to bivouac. And they, I stayed with the general for, for the rest of the bivouac. And, and fortunately, the, everything was done after that. After bivouac, uh, I only had to go back to the barracks once or twice. So I was not very popular when I went back. So that was it. It was it sort of got back in the tennis. It was fun to play there. But uh, then off, came back to, to Boston and started to play again. At what point did you decide that you were going to start your own business, right? So you and your sisters, you're selling tennis dresses whenever you can, right, to make money and help help the family business. But at some point, you're going to you start your own. Yeah, right after getting back from the army, I decided to start a men's tennis clothing business. My mother had always had the the, the women's clothing, yeah. so I thought, ah, we can start the men's, and um, so I did. And I started a factory in Methuen, Mass, in an old mill building. They used to make shoes there, and power was powered by the uh, the water uh, yeah. way right next to it, yeah. and. Uh, it was, it was a really interesting place. It was going back in time. You're talking about the building's been there for so many years. And I saw that, started selling tennis clothes, made a few other products just to survive as well. But basically tennis clothes. And my mother had, had been in business for a while, so she had a lot of contacts. And um, very quickly, we got into a lot of top uh, stores in the country. Bloomingdale's, Macy's, Abercrombie's, uh, Saks. And at the same time, I was really playing still and yeah. playing better and better. So that was good. And then, Can I ask, so this, this, this business is Paul Sullivan Sportswear? Paul have, Sullivan have you, Sportswear, yeah. Okay, so it's, it's just like, like your mom, right? Either Sullivan Tennis Creations, now you're doing Paul Sullivan Sportswear, and it's yeah. just men's tennis. Yeah. And we had a nice little logo that was very popular i had all my friends you know wore the stuff uh, we had uh, everybody loved the the clothes were great great looking great well designed yeah and even in the even sports guys around boston you know from the celtics and from the, the bruins particularly the bruins would come up to the factory and and get their their uh, freebies and, and wear them yeah i think that that's one of the fun things kind of looking back as a kid not really understanding then that, you know, Bobby Orr and Johnny Busick and, you know, just these professional athletes from Jimmy Connors and Chris, Chris Everett coming over to the house. I remember seeing photo shoots and just thinking that that was kind of, that was normal. <laughs> now looking back <laughs> and seeing that, wow, Bobby Orr was at our house, right? And, you, and he's yeah. buying all your, all your tennis clothes. And I think yeah. you're, you're coaching him at the time. Well, they actually, he, he loved to play tennis, but his yeah. knees were in pretty bad shape even when he was playing. Yeah. And after he finished playing, he played quite a bit. And we played a bit uh, together. He was a good guy. He was really a good guy. So anyway, that, that's uh, – we had uh, – one thing we always did is that we, we had a free list. And so we put a lot of people on the free list, all the friends. And, and so we uh, – and our, all our friends, were, when we did our catalogs, we had – all our friends were the models yep. for, for the catalogs. And your mother, by the way, was the uh, a sales manager after I started the business, got married a few years later, and, and she um, did a great job as a sales manager and uh, established a for sales force all around the world, actually. Mm -hmm. And so, all right, so you're building a business, right? And you got a little bit of a, a roadmap from your mother and you got some sales contacts. But, you know, you got to set up this operation and, and you go and now you got to support the brand. Nobody knows this brand except for you playing tennis around the world. So can you tell us about that, like juggling, building the business and playing uh, we, tennis? And Yeah, we also had showroom in, at the Empire State Building in New York. Yeah. Um, we went to shows for the business. But the, the biggest promotion was actually playing, yeah. I think, and trying to make manage the business as well as play at the same time was was a challenge but it seemed to work out I mean it went all over the world to play I had a wonderful time playing 
won some matches, beat some good players, ended up winning some fairly big tournaments. So uh, I think that so the highlights of that are maybe people would think of it differently. I, I actually think of the, the highlights of my tennis career of playing with all my kids, yeah. including you. And uh, that was tremendous. I did play with some other really great players in doubles. Billy Jean and I won the U.S. National Indoor Championships uh, a couple of years. I think it was 67 and 68. Yeah. I then played yeah. with a, a, another woman who was a great player as well, Patty Hogan. And we won the, the outdoor, the U.S. grass court championships the following year, 69, I believe. Okay, so you won in 67 and 68 with Billie Jean King, and that became the U.S. Open. So they called that the pre-Open era, right? Yeah, the 69 was the U.S. Uh, national outdoors. Yeah. That was indoors with Billie Jean. They, that's what became the, the outdoors, became the U.S. Open championships. Yeah. So uh, on we went. We, I played a, a tremendous amount of – I played the U.S. Open 12 times, I'd say, something like mm-hmm. that. Played Wimbledon, you know, it's just it's a lot of fun playing. And most of it was playing for, because you weren't making a lot of money, if any. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, the last, the biggest amount of money I won was, I mean, you had to do a lot to win a few bucks, but I won $2,500 by winning the, the national championships in mixed doubles, yeah. uh, getting the quarters of the, uh, the doubles and the 16s of the 16s. Of the singles, you know, it's a lot of wins to win twenty five hundred dollars. But there was you know, twenty five a lot of money at the time, so pretty excited about that. But that was really at the end of my career. So most people, most people, you know, wouldn't think that right playing professional sports at that elite level and winning wasn't enough to sustain right a, a real career, and that you had another business going on. And while you're playing, right, you're, the business is successful because people are seeing this brand and they want it in at country clubs and they want it at, at retail. Uh, were there any like fun moments where you knew, right? Hey, I'm I'm partially trying to win because I love tennis and partially because I'm I'm marketing clothing. Oh, I can remember one very well. Uh, I was playing the the U.S. Open uh, at uh, Forest Hills. Was on grass. I was playing in the. Um, the clubhouse stadium court and I was playing against a, a guy from Yale, Donald Dell. And, um, he was like ranked maybe five in the country and, and we were having a great match. And first of all, if I go back a bit, um, I had sold Bloomingdale's and a lot of the other stores, but Bloomingdale's put a full page ad in the New York times that day I was playing to promote the brand and um, they thought while I was playing, we'd <laughs> drum, in, drum up some business, right? So I, I, the whole time I was out in the court, I was walking the court, and I said, this is a really big problem because I have to, my clothes have to look good on this court. Uh, whether I win or lose, my clothes have to look good. And so I'm playing along, and, and I, what I was really worried about was that my zipper and my shorts would open up. And I would be done for the business would be gone. And so I kept looking down at my zipper and we were at like three all in the fifth set. And all of a sudden I looked down to check that my zipper is not open. And he, I was receiving syrup and he served and he hit me where you don't want to be hit right in the zipper. (laughs) And I went down and he won the match handily after that. (laughs) But the biggest thing is my zipper didn't open and my clothes were looking really good. So it turned out to be a good business day and a a pretty good tennis day as well. That's great. So maybe we can jump into the tennis racket, right? Because, you know, you're running a business, you're playing professional tennis around the world, and then you've decided, hey, there's there's a better a better way to do this. And you, you come up with, what, the first aluminum tennis racket. Right. I was sitting with a friend, um, because his name Peter Latham. He was a mechanical designer and design firm. 
I was sitting watching, we were watching guys play, and there's one guy out there playing with a, a racket was called the uh, T2000, which is Wilson T2000, which is a steel yeah. racket invented by Rene Lacrosse, a great tennis player. And we were watching, and I said, Peter, you know, we should do, we could do something better than that. That thing is just not playable. And basically, it was a difficult racket to play with. Mm-hmm. And uh, not many people were successful playing with it. So anyway, we said, okay, and I borrowed 5000 bucks from my Uncle Frank, and that was enough to get us started. And um, off we went. We you know, kept trying things, and I remember trying one racket that w- was really felt great, but after I hit a few balls, it was bent mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> wouldn't come back. So that was a problem. We kept working on it, working on it, and not long with a great polar type and I played matches with it and so I th- thought we could sell this thing and uh, what, was, what was the racket made of? Uh, it was aluminum it was the first aluminum tennis racket ever made um, yeah it was really really quite exciting the whole thing was quite exciting so we're, we're, we've got this thing designed we may have a few prototypes um, we've got a manufacturing firm that can make prototypes that not make, you know, real production. So um, we went off to a show in New York for the clothing. And it was also for showing footing goods. So I showed the racket as well. And it was inc- absolutely incredible because I sold 50,000 rackets in two days at, at that show. And um, at the end of the second day, I had been doing business with A.G. Spalding at that time. I had made them, made them uh, some private label tennis shorts and so they uh the guy i dealt with it at spalding came up to me and and said paul the uh, the president of spalding would like to meet you back at the hotel and i said what what about and he said oh, well you know he'd like to talk to you about the racket and i said well maybe we could do it at lunchtime and so we we did on the third day i went to their hotel room and uh, he made an offer that you just couldn't refuse to take it over, just license it. It turned out to be the by far the largest license agreement Spalding ever had. So that was unbelievable. First of all, we had I had fifty thousand rackets sold and I didn't have a manufacturing plan yeah. in here. Yeah. <laughs> that was a big problem. Yeah. Anyway, um, that was quite eventful. Uh, you know, only a week later. Uh, contracts drawn up, contract with Joan drawn up with them. And I went off to um, Chicopee, that's where Spalding was, Chicopee Bass, to sign the deal and get the deposit. And so uh, on the way up, I realized, you know, I was really didn't have much money. I was really broke. So is it, so let's take a step back for a second. So yeah. you go to this trade show with the new racket mm-hmm. and it's clearly a hit, but you're, you're there really selling tennis clothes, right? Something that you've yeah. been doing for years and that that's the primary business. The racket takes off and Spalding says, you know, we, we got to figure out how to own this. And, you know, today that would be, you know, months of negotiation. You'd have parties on both sides, but you got the largest licensing deal that Spalding's ever done done in a week with mm-hmm. like did you have an attorney how do oh, we, yeah uh, how I, had, did you come I had an attorney who was sort of the guy who started did my business stuff yep. and um then they put the contract together and included an arbitration clause and whatever i was just happy to get the thing done it was think of having to figure out how am i going to make fifty thousand records and if they're selling fifty thousand today i'll be selling hundreds of thousands next year yeah so anyway yeah, it was it was it was a quick deal. Yeah, remember you know getting the nice sweet check, driving back, and got back and just couldn't believe that that, that I was, you know, in and out of the business so quickly. That's fantastic. So you get a, a big check to start the deal, right? And then you've mm-hmm. got royalties uh, ongoing as they produce and sell product. Yeah, right? a hefty hefty percentage of the royalties. And they had uh, they had a guy named Poncho Gonzalez, who was the best professional player in the world, yeah. uh, on their 
on their list of players. And mm-hmm. um, he had a racket with his name on it. And he dropped that racket and used this racket. And, um, you know, came came around, did great with it. He was 42 at the time. And he's still playing great. He's, yeah. He said he added five years to his tennis career. So Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. It, it's quite incredible. But I remember reading about him talking about switching to that racket and how it added uh, years to his career, the ability to hit the ball harder and uh, yeah, the control was, that he had. The aerodynamics of the racket were really the big thing. Mm-hmm. And that that's what helped. I started winning matches that I probably shouldn't have won because no one else had the racket when I was starting. And yeah. then everybody was getting the racket, so it, was, it wasn't winning as many matches. But but he won. He won big time. I remember him playing in the stadium at, in the open and I'm sitting right on the, right next to the, the court and I, he, you could hear him talking and he kept talking to himself. Look at, he kept saying, cover the, cover the ball. This thing's going to fly off the off the strings, cover it. And so he did. He served like a madman. So uh, it was fun. It was fun. It was fun. Oh, that's got to be amazing to kind of see your, you know, product in action and also create that little edge, that little competitive advantage for yourself. Right. It, it reminds me a little bit of, of what you were able to figure out for me in hockey, right. And having somebody sew together my hockey equipment. Right. And everybody thought, yeah. what is that? Right. There's no brand on it. Everybody else had the brand. Yeah, but we had the competitive advantage of being lighter. Took a, probably a few more bruises, but my stuff was lighter than everybody else's. We <laughs> yeah, sewed that it was really you designing that stuff. No, and, uh, that was not me. <laughs> it was. I think you had a Z on it or something at the at the end. I don't know what that was the brand, but anyway, that was on yeah. it. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and it was fantastic the way you could handle those pads. Yeah, and not too dissimilar. Like Sean and I went to a trade show with that Shocks prototype, right? Yeah. That skate that, that was. You know, it was, it was definitely a prototype, but maybe you could skate a little bit better in, in certain ways. And, uh, you know, we pretended we were going to sell it at that trade show. And then along came a brand and said, Hey, we'll, we want to license this. And so we did very much the same thing, you know, got, yeah. got a check and then ongoing royalties. But so your, your situation, right. You alluded to this idea that you had an arbitration clause and that becomes yeah. very important in this, this story with the racket. So why don't we finish that uh, side of the? Well, anyway, the checks were coming in quarterly mm-hmm. uh, from Spalding, and they were big um, yeah. for us. For me, at that time, the you know the, back in 1960, 69, 70, in that, that area somewhere, the uh, we're coming. I remember like every month, I can't can't believe we're getting this much money. We're not doing anything here. Mm-hmm. And I'm um, working like a bandit in the, the clothing, but uh, I feel like I'm not working much here. And we actually started, decided to do another racket at the time. So that mm-hmm. another product. Mm-hmm. But anyway, after about two years, Balding uh, was bought out by a company called Questor. And um, they stopped payment on the deal. They decided not to pay us. And uh, the quarter came, and I'm uh, looking for the check. No check, and waited a week, and uh, finally called my my buyer at, at Spalding and said, "What's going on?" And he said, "I don't know. You have to call this guy. I called that guy. He said you have to call that guy." Finally, I end up calling the uh, the general counsel, and he uh, said, "We're not paying. You can't do anything about it." And so uh, we had an arbitration clause yeah. in the agreement. So I talked to my lawyers. We end up taking him to arbitration. And I remember there was three days of arbitration. And after the second day, my, my lawyer said, hey, Paul, I never tell my client anything like this, but there's no way you can lose this case. They just blatantly infringed upon us the agreement. They, they actually try to retroactively cancel the agreement. So anyway, they... Um, Went by. I, I, that night, I got a call from someone who said he was one of the arbiters and said that he, he could help us. He thought I was a good guy and that he could help with his case. And I said, I don't know what you're talking about. 
I'm not interested in anything like that. Thanking them, hut up. So anyway, I, I called the lawyer. I didn't record the call. And so that went nowhere. Next day, we go in. Next time, we go to the third session of the arbitration, and they actually make a decision, and we lose the case, which was unbelievably devastating. Mm -hmm. But time goes on, and we um, six months later, the patent issued. The patent hadn't issued it at that before. That was just patent pending. And so uh, patent issued, we sued them again. And this time uh, took a while for the first trial to go through, and we won the first level, won at the next level, and when they appealed it, and we won at that level. And I don't remember how many levels it were. It seemed like level after level or level, years after years going by here. And finally, we get awarded trouble damages, three times what they would have paid if they just stayed with the agreement. Mm -hmm. um, for, I think that was willful instrument. They call it willful infringement. Mm -hmm. So we got trouble damages for that. So they appealed, even after all those appeals, they appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, which is absolutely ridiculous. The U.S. Supreme Court, what, they handle, they see one case out of 100 at, at, at most. Mm -hmm. And so time goes by, we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. Then my lawyer said, uh, oh, um, we can't take that. <laughs> We're not going to take it to the Supreme Court unless you, I, we get a piece of the action other than what we had agreed to pay on. it." said, that's not right. You agreed to it. I should stay with the deal. He said, well, we won't take it to the deal. And finally, I agreed, okay, go. And we took it to this. Well, we're going to take it to the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court denied the hearing it. So they didn't mm -hmm. have to do anything. <laughs> and then uh, maybe I think it was a month or two later, yeah. Spalding showed up in Boston at my bank that my friend was at, Baron Barlow's heroin, and handed over a fairly large check. And that was sort of the, the end of the dealings with Spalding. They went on and did some other stuff, and, and we did another racket after that, which was exciting again. So, yeah. That's about it to that point in the racket, but so it, yeah, it's an amazing story, right? So you invent the racket, you get it licensed, you're enjoying these royalty payments, which are really significant. Then they the Spalding gets sold, and uh, right, the, and then the new owner says, "We're not going to pay, right? This is too lucrative. We're just going to see what happens." And then it takes years of lawsuits, all the way to the level of the Supreme Court. And then even your lawyers turn and say, we want more money yeah. after winning and winning and winning. And so time. I don't know how many, how many years went by. Oh, in, I mean, in six that years, probably six years. Right? Long and time. So, so six years and how is the business doing that was all the kind of clothing manufacturing? Are you still in Methuen Mass at this point? Clothing was doing quite well. And uh, until uh, like, like 1974, when we had a flood. In the, in the in the buildings, uh, and that was an absolute disaster for us. We had three floors in the buildings. The bottom floor was cement, and the other two floors were wood. We had machinery on the top floor. We had uh, fabric on the second floor, and we had um, more storage on the bottom floor. And the uh, one, the sprinklers actually was a, a fire alarm uh, went off, but it didn't sound in the fire department, which happened to be this actually Christmas in Eve. Christmas this is Eve, on Christmas yeah. Eve. Christmas yeah. Eve. And the fire alarm didn't, which was connected to the fire department, didn't connect. And so the water from the, from the broke the, uh, was freezing, it was, was 20 below zero, and the pipes broke and zapped. They just flooded for hours and hours. It was more than 24 hours, but someone finally discovered it, and they had four feet of water in the, on the basement, on the bottom floor, and had gone through all the other floors and ruined everything. So basically, uh, it was, we had all our spring merchandise in inventory already, ready to deliver, and, um, but it was all disaster. It was gone. So... I couldn't 
do much about that. So I didn't have any business for the spring. So I couldn't manufacture it fast enough. And I couldn't get any equipment or I couldn't even get a contract with somebody. And um, you had to pay off debts, right? Oh, the debt my debt on was, all yeah, my debt was just crazy because I, I remember lying in bed and said, oh my gosh, I got to get up because the interest is just piling up here. I got to get up and get to work. And anyway, with six months or more after that, fighting with the insurance company, we got 10 cents on the dollar, finally settled mm-hmm. whatever we get. And at that stage, the business was basically in deep trouble. It was gone, basically gone. Trying to revive it. I tried a little bit in Massachusetts and just didn't work out very well. But I had actually previously started a factory in Puerto Rico, making a lot of military equipment, uniforms. And so um, I decided we would then have to put all our efforts there. Because I owed a lot of money, closed the factory in Methuen, and made a lot of goods, not under our own label anymore, but Nike and Adidas and a lot of other name brands. They made tons of stuff and took about six years. The bank finally stopped the interest on the payment because if anybody is listening here that is old enough to remember the 70s interest rate, I think it was 74 or something, was in the 20s. So you can imagine what the interest was piling up at. Anyway, the bank was kind enough to stop the interest payments, and and I eventually paid. Well, it was like six years later, paid it off the loan. All right. So, is is I'm trying to get the time frame right. So, has the lawsuit with the racket finished at this point, or is it still? Yeah, just ongoing? about finished. I just collected okay. the money. That's done, and we got some money from the racket, uh, but um, we're talking about a lot more money from the inventory loss and everything else that goes in the business. Yeah. So yeah. I concentrated on Puerto Rico, and um, that built up over time. We ended up with two factories there. Pretty, pretty good environment to manufacture. The women were women were really, really great. Not too many men involved. So uh, that was fine. And then uh, during that time, I decided to open a factory in Jamaica, which I I went in and actually purchased a small one, really quite small. And then uh, six months later, actually started another one in the free zone and had that for quite a while. And can you explain the free zone? The free zone, actually, NAFTA was the big thing at the time, which is an agreement that you could bring goods in from basically um, Mexico and Central America to the U.S. uh, tax-free. It had to involve... U.S. products, uh, the the base of the product being the, the materials from the U.S. business uh, was pretty good. Jamaica wasn't a great environment. There's a lot of drugs going on. I remember uh, one of the businesses next to us, uh, we shipped out big containers. And one of the businesses next to us uh, had shipped out one to Miami. And the customs agent opened up the back and phew, out came marijuana bags and bags almost buried the, the customs agents. That was big trouble. You always had to have an armed guard to take your your container to mm-hmm. the to the airport or to the port and then dogs sniffing everywhere. So it was not a great place to, to really do that kind of thing. Let me ask though, so that, did that business get purchased? Did somebody want to buy that business? I know there's a story around combining the Puerto Rico factory and the Jamaica factory to sell it to a group in Iowa. It, it, it's well, no, that's actually the, the the Iowa thing is the clothing, but the we go back to that. I had an opportunity at one point to sell the the clothing business um, mm-hmm. when it was going quite well. Some lawyers saying this company in Iowa interested in buying. Your clothing company, and so I explored the the interest. Went out there, and it involved moving the whole family. It's part of the big issue for me because, to me, all along this is a family thing for my mom and my sisters and all my kids, you and even the grandkids now. Every it's family involved, and um, so that was a really big issue for me. But they again offered a really good deal, and part of it was that I'd have to. We'd all have to move there, or I'd mm-hmm. have to move there and 
everybody else was going to go with me for at least two years. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we got to the point where we had agreed on all terms of the deal. I thought we had agreed on all terms. And we he came to Boston to sign the deal and put the deposit down. I actually paid the full amount. And my lawyer said to me, uh, oh, we have to change something. I said, well, we got it all agreed. Why are we changing? He said, no, I, I, I don't like really like this one thing here. I said, but it doesn't mean a thing. Forget it. And he said, no, no, we can't, we can't do that. So we go into the room and he said to them, uh, we have to change this. You know, we, it's not right. We don't like it. And they say, well, we're not changing it. And he said, oh, yeah, we have to change it. He said, well, we're not changing it. And he said, well, we, we have to change it. And they said, okay, goodbye. And they left the room. Mm-hmm. And that was the mm-hmm. end of that deal. <laughs> Literally I, I the think, end uh, of the deal. I'm sure there's there is a lot to that, but I think that maybe the lesson and we see it all the time is that you know we surround every business owner, every founder with the m a dream team, right? And these people that we're giving them are elite, and that's what creates these amazing outcomes. But there are times when you have to understand you have hired these people and you need to control them. And there are times where lawyers, they are there to protect you, to really limit your risk. But there is a point when a deal needs to get done and you need as, as founders and us shepherding founders through this M&A process, we often step in and say enough is enough. We know what kind of risk we can live with and the probability of something going wrong is so low. But we, we see that some of the attorneys don't see it that way. They've got to win. So I just encourage founders and business owners who are selling to really take the reins uh, at the goal line and not ruin really good deals, not let their representatives ruin really good deals. So yeah, yeah, that's, that's a bit of a shame, but I also, it's, and and when you, we talked about it, you know, you could have called back, you could have revived it, but something didn't feel right. Yeah, exactly. I think the, the idea that all of us moving to Iowa I grew up in, you know, in Massachusetts, school in Massachusetts, and and loved the being in this area. And you guys were all playing hockey all the time, and it was it was good for everybody to stay around. So it was always that in the back of my mind, going through this whole deal. And then when it blew up, it was like it was almost like a relief. Oh man, we don't have to go to Iowa. But you ended up in Iowa anyway to play hockey. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so so that deal blows up, and then it's a year later, Christmas Eve, yeah. where the factory, the pipes freeze, Boom. and and the pipes burst, and basically bankrupt the factory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, so just, I, mean, I know any is any regrets on that? I know you've come to me around saying. <sighs> You know, you got to know when it's time to get out. Yeah, um, I think that the business was so much oriented around friends and family mm-hmm. that wasn't really in my mind to, to just time to get rid of this thing. But I think that's a big mistake. You got to know when it's time to take it beyond what you can take it. And mm-hmm. at some point, there's some professionalism needs to be involved and I wasn't really that a professional. Yeah, I think it takes a you know an extraordinary founder to really or business owner to really understand where their skill set, you know, starts and ends. And so I think what you're talking about is like once you reach that limit and you've taken a business as, as far as you think you can take it, you have to either bring in real professional management or potentially sell that business, bring on, you know, financial partners that have the resources to take it to the next level. So, okay. So business then, you know, goes through that really that shutdown, that bankruptcy, but you've started up a second business in Puerto Rico, right? And you're now not doing the Paul Sullivan sportswear, but you're doing more military garments yeah we, we actually we actually just didn't go through a bankruptcy at that time we just closed it down and okay end up having paid when we could um yep. what we owed but with the we did have the factory in puerto rico that was going pretty well started the other one in jamaica there are two factories actually a small one that I purchased and then another one in the free zone that that 
they both were going pretty well. The Freezone had a lot of lot of product coming out of it, making mostly for Nike and Adidas, uh, other name brands, tons of goods for Nike particularly. And they came to me and said they will want us to do more business. And that meant investing more money. And I just didn't really want to do that. And I told them, you know, it wasn't for me. And they said, well, we got someone out of Malaysia, a company out of Malaysia that we're doing business with over there. And they're looking to buy a company that has connections in the States. And so we ended up selling both Puerto Rico and Jamaica to this company, SPTI was called, in, in Malaysia. And uh, interesting times dealing with this, these guys. And part of the deal was that I get X amount up front, and then um, about a third of it, I had to stay around and work with them for two years afterwards, which was okay. And then I get the, the balance of the payment. And again, you know, you, business is not easy, not sometimes not pleasant. Things were going pretty well. They were doing fine. The factories were doing fine. But they, at the end of it, they didn't want to send the, the last payment. And so it was just, uh, it was not pleasant. Um, and it took actually one last telephone call to the chairman of the board. And uh, it was telling them that, that I don't know what's going on, but I don't think everybody around the world wants to know what's going on in these factories now. But I want my money by noon tomorrow. And I got the wire transferred by noon. So yeah. that was it. That was done. And now I could breathe a little bit. I had some time on my hands. And all along, I'm watching hockey games and tennis matches. I watched 100 games in one year that you played. It's just it was crazy time traveling back and forth. Go ahead. All right. So let's just go back a bit, right? So this is the second sale of a business that you're that you're going through, right? Well, first is the license really of the racket. Yeah. Then you've got an acquisition to that the group in Iowa that falls apart. But then this one with the group in Malaysia is going to go through. Did you have anybody representing you in that, right? Because you're you have earnout payments, you've got balloon payments, you've got some sophistication around. Yeah, I had some guys that were. I thought we're pretty good at it, and yeah. um, I think they, you know overall we're okay. But you, you, know, you can deal with some tough people and yeah. um, tough situations, so can't blame them for anything in that at all. It worked out in the end, and yeah. then it came in the breather to just go on and think: what should I do next? Besides watch some hockey games or tennis matches and play a little bit. Well, it's not just watch some, right? Like uh, what I think is amazing. One of my favorite parts of, of playing hockey, right? Is having you come to every game and be in the stands. And when I say every game, it comes back to, you know, some of the things that you took for granted. I remember playing against Northeastern and being interviewed after the game and, and somebody saying, oh, it must be great to come home to play so your family could see you. And, and I said, well, no, my dad comes to every game. They're like, what do you mean? Like, yeah, he goes to every game that we that we play in, and and by the way, he's flying from El Salvador to do it because you yeah. had started another company, yeah. you know, in El Salvador, and then that story just kind of took fire, and then you know you were featured in Sports Illustrated. The article was um, uh, called "Frequent Flyer," right? And it was not about me and hockey; it was about you coming to see every single college hockey game that I played in. And and I just thought that's what that's what everyone did. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I did miss one game, and I was really disappointed. Yeah. It was uh, you played yeah. up in Alaska, and it was at Christmas, yeah. and I really couldn't. We allowed her leaving home at Christmas to go see hockey in Alaska. So uh, that's the game I missed. It was a great game too. I remember that we played against uh, yeah. Maine in the finals. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. that's. Uh, uh, Paul Paul Korea scored twice on me to win that game two to one. That was it. That was it. Yeah, I mean, that, was, that was a good game. An incredible game. The I, those trips back and forth on well, El Salvador. I started a factory in El Salvador when I sort of searched around to do something else. Um, yep. I chose El Salvador 
after go- visiting several times, they they were still in fighting each other. The Civil War was going on for I think twelve mm-hmm. years, a long time. And yeah. when I first went in, it was it was scary. It was guns everywhere, machine gunners uh, in bunkers and. Anyway, for some reason, I, I, I was convinced that the people were so good that I would start the factory there. And I did, and it turned out to be really, really good. The workers, workers were great. We ended up with, the, oh, I don't know, 2,300 people working, several factory buildings and producing three-quarters of millions of products every week, shipping it out. This is a lot of, lot of, lot of product. So... Anyway, besides traveling back and forth every weekend to watch hockey games in in the winter, I was running that business down there, and back home, down there, back home. But it, it it was it's a it was a tough area. I mean, it was tougher than Jamaica, and that's going some. I mean, there's always something going on, just beheadings and uh, just terrible stuff going on. But mm-hmm. anyway, the um, that went on really quite well and. I remember being back in, in Boston, going to Papagio's for lunch, the little Italian restaurant, and getting my sandwich. And you were there and you sat down and said, Dad, I got a really good idea. And you came up with the idea of, of uh, personalizing uh, clothing and selling it on the internet. And this is way back when no one did that. It was like the first mm-hmm. to do it. So that's how that business was called My God to start with. And then yeah, – Another one, and you ended up with a what was it? The um, you you turned another one. It was more towards spirit shop, spirit shop towards schools, towards schools. Uh, mm-hmm. It was it was that was a really fun business. So that kept going along pretty well. Factory producing a lot of clothes, uh, but yeah. then re- reality set in that El Salvador was a nice place to for make merchandise, but the prices of the costs doing business going up. Government was not easy to deal with, to say the least. And um, the, the environment overall was tough. Can I jump into that, right? Yeah. So, you know, you were there and I remember these stories of, you know, you're staying in a hotel room that doesn't have a, a wall, an outside wall is missing because it's been blown out. Mm-hmm. I remember, you know, I tried to come and learn the business and being there, there was a guy that was throwing a a tree trunk in front of a road to block cars and then taking a a wild animal by the tail, throwing it into the car and having it tear the people up inside. And then the people would come out of the car. He'd kill the people and steal the car. And this was going on for weeks until the police, you know, staged the the fake car and caught the guy and took him out in the back of the woods and shot him in the back of the head. Right, that was what you you, you dealt with, yeah. and and you had one employee, right, where where family members were kidnapped, and it was crazy. The yeah. government would even give right bodyguards for in, as long as you wanted if you had a family member that was kidnapped. Like that was a thing. So it was a really dangerous environment. It, it, you didn't you know, know who was good and who was bad either. Right? I remember yeah. going to. Uh, I met these two people that spoke English and my Spanish was pretty weak. And um, mm. they said, oh, come to dinner with us. So they went to this restaurant and, and restaurants down there outside. Um, yeah. And um, I parked my car on a side road and, and they told me where to park. And and there was other there was guys there. There's a couple of girls, uh, guys and and I said, my car going to be safe here? And one of the guys, a big guy, and said, ah, don't worry about it. Uh, uh, one, if someone steals it, we'll know, we'll know where it is. <laughs> so I go, oh, boy. Okay, so we go into the, this restaurant, and, uh, and everybody's having a good time there. Music is playing, and you know, I'm just thinking, this is kind of a strange place. First of all, you walk in, and they have a gun rack. And everybody puts mm-hmm. their guns on the gun rack. Except mm-hmm. I don't have a gun, and so then we go sit down and play music and people dancing, and I'm sitting there, keep looking at that gun rack. I mean, that's where? Why am I here? This is crazy. And then all of a sudden, I hear gunfire outside, and mm-hmm. everybody at the table, except every man at the table, except for me, 
gets up, runs to the gun rack, grabs the run, and runs outside, and there's a shootout. And it turns out that the guys that were on my table were from the police. And um, they settled the score outside. They came back in. Just like nothing ever happened. Guns back in the gun rack. And um, they came back to the table. Music started again. Back to uh, having a good time. Yeah, that was a crazy place because you didn't know who was a police officer and who wasn't and what the rules were. Yeah, that was incredible that you were there for, for that long. And, you know, in hindsight, like that, that's some danger. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I think, I think it brings uh, kind of the point, one of the points you and I were talking about in, in entrepreneurship and building these businesses, right? You just, you've just got a battle. Nobody's going to give it to you, right? You got one of the biggest corporations in the world trying to steal from you, right? You've got uh, international companies that buy your company and they don't want to make payments. And then you got to go to all uh, points in the world really to get quality and inexpensive labor in order to compete. So it's really like anything to survive and thrive. And I think you talk, you talked a lot about like the business and sports, how, you know, what you have to give in order to be successful. Maybe you can say something to that. Yeah. I think you mean you have to compete, 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 always compete in in the tennis and the squash and you have to fight, you know, you have to fight for a point, uh, fight for a match. So that's no different in, in business. It's just, it turns out, you know, it's all, all fun. It's, you, know, you have to compete all the time. You have to be aware of what's going on. I think the, the competition was a big problem in, in El Salvador because their wages were going up and, and China was, you know, they're paying nothing, literally nothing to the people. And so the goods were flying in. They could, you could buy anything in a tenth of what we could make it for. And so that really killed El Salvador eventually. We killed the business. It finally ended up turning that over to management and leaving it. I was pretty pretty much long on the truth at the time. It was close to 70 at the time. And so I just turned it over to them, and they, they tried to run it after that. And that was it. That was sort of the end of the the, the business, I think. Yeah, uh, I think that final move, right, of essentially selling the company to the employees, the management for $1 is what you did, yeah. right? And one of the things yeah. that impressed me along the way, really kind of looking back and thinking about the stories is how, you know, in Methuen, Mass., you know, I would go to that factory and I'd slide down the slides where clothes would go down from, you know, a, a, an inventory room to a sewer and I met all the all the ladies sewing, and then you would take them, you know, take the whole company on cruises. And so, very much, these businesses were felt like extensions of family, right? There, yeah, they were they were really personal. So it wasn't about kind of maximizing dollars, and and maybe business is a business is a little different today. But I think a lot of particularly the baby boomers have built a single business over the last 40, 50 years, right? And it and it satisfied the needs of their family and they found some level of success but a lot of family members don't want to be you know the next generation doesn't want to be in that business and so they're looking for you know how do i how do i close this up or how do i sell it and and get kind of a the last payday and your last payday really was that one dollar handing it off to to the employees and being 70 years old and saying okay it's time to time to call it quits on on the business front and really just help us, right, going forward in business. And, and well, really what... I, mean, I don't know how much help I was, but I certainly it, it, I had some background, at least, in, in, in what not to do. <laughs> I think I was pretty good at that by that point. Uh, yeah, I think the, the timing is everything on these things. And I think maybe to know when to get out is huge um, in a business. And to get be able to get trusted people to advise you and how to find a, a good buyer. Yeah. I, I think, you know, those are, those are really good points. And I was just going to ask you like what your, you know, your best advice would be to people that have built a business and they're ready to kind of turn that page. You know, what do you, how do you think they should be thinking about it? Really any advice that you have to, to fellow business owners? I think, one would be to look at things and, and make sure that the advice you're getting was in concert with what 
you believed was good and sound and not let someone really take you over and make your decisions, you've got to make a decision whether you want to sell this or not. And the other thing is that, I mean, from my personal point of view, honesty has always been the, the big thing. You're playing tennis, the ball's in or is it out? It's, you call it the way it really is. And the same thing in business was always the same thing, no matter how, what the cost was, you got to do this right. So you got to find honest people mm-hmm. to deal with, to take you to where you want to go in, in, in business and also in exit as well. I would think it'd be extremely important to know the people you're dealing with are good people. Oh, I think that's uh boy, what you just hearing you say that, how I've seen you live that life and I hadn't equated it to, to business, but yeah, that's how, you know, you really lived uh, your business life. And so knowing your buyer, wow, what a lesson that's really hard to do. And I think business owners need to do as much due diligence on a buyer as they are, as a buyer is doing due diligence on them when it comes to a transaction, particularly when you're going to have to uh, work there and, and earn more of your income. And then you're handing a legacy over to these buyers. So getting to know them and really having the people that are representing you know who you're selling to. So you know, you know exactly what you're, uh, what you're getting into. All right. So Pop, when you, when you had multiple exits or you sold, uh, or you got the licensing agreement done with, uh, the racket and Spalding, you know, how did you celebrate? <laughs> I, oh, that's funny. I mean, the first thing I think of is I got to spend this money. I mean, I, I was not good at saving money. I was probably the worst person in the world saving money. And so I bought my dad a car. I bought my mom, and all, all the ladies in the family, sisters, all fur coats. And, and we had a great, great time. And so that was it. And I think that uh, that was my celebration. I mean, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's it. It's sort of fun. All right. So just final question. So is there one person that you would like to thank that really contributed to your personal and professional success? Well, for me, it's, it'd be a, I have to thank God. That's certainly the number one thing. If you give me more than one, I would thank God. I thank family, for sure. All my family, right up to my grandchildren and friends. I miss so many friends have been tremendous help over the years. That's, that's it. That's it. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Pop, thanks for telling this story because I've heard it in bits and pieces over the years. And there are so many amazing stories about just fighting through adversity to build something, knowing when to say, Hey, I got to make the next move, right? Hedge your bets, take some money off the table live to fight another day. And, you know, I, 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 I know when I always made the joke, you know, when in doubt, call it out. You never liked that. It was very black and white. I didn't like the joke. <laughs> or you didn't like the joke at all. Uh, because, you know, it, it, truth was so important to you. And I, and I remember this really, the story that's pretty recent is that you go to all the Harvard tennis games, uh, tennis matches when you can, right? And yep. you were watching University of Michigan play Harvard at Harvard. And you saw, right, college tennis has changed quite a bit, right? And, you know, the the fair play may not be at the pinnacle of right. uh, kind of in tennis history. And they've, tennis has had to change rules in order to, to combat yeah. uh, yeah, kind of true. this behavior. And you saw um, a Michigan player call a ball out and then correct himself, right? And, and, and it was a critical point. And this Michigan player says, you know, I'm sorry, that ball was in and gives the point to the Harvard player. And it's, it's just a few points before this match is over and it's very, very close, right? Maybe, can you, yeah, can you, can you maybe recount that story a little bit? Anyway, the um, Harvard, they were having a great match, and it was in the, the, the third set. And it was like two points away from winning the match. The, the mission guy was up, and he was up two points from winning. 
and this ball was hit by Havakai and it hit the line. The mission guy thought it was out. He called it out and he, then he looked back and he said, oh, turned and he said to the umpire and to the, the kid, the Havakai, I'm sorry, that ball was in. It's your point. And, and the umpire uh, had, had agreed with him, right? He called it yeah, out the and umpire the umpire agreed, agreed with yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. The, the, uh, he lost that, gave the point, and then he ended up losing, which is incredible. I think we were in the tiebreaker. And so it's uh, – I was – Totally impressed. I, I was so refreshing to see someone like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up uh, getting his email address, I guess it was, or his, his address or something, and I wrote him a letter. I thought it was just worth congratulating him on, on something that was far more important than winning a match. Yeah, and I remember you, you, know, you wrote this letter that equated him to these you know, really professional players of the past, right? That had yeah. real honor. Yeah. And you ended up giving him one of your original tennis rackets that you played with back in 1967, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and along with that note. So I think it, to me, that was a really, you know, more recent example of how you lived your business life and, and personal life. Like what is right is right. What's wrong is wrong. So, uh, yeah. Well, Pop, <laughs> thank you for going down memory lane again. Uh-huh. I hope people enjoy this. There's so, so many good stories that we, we didn't get to, but the business career was fantastic and the M&A stories and licensing. It's all things that I learned a ton from and, you know, have been able to take pieces of, you know, over the years for myself. So thank you. Thank you, bud. Thanks again for listening to the Cashing Out Podcast. For more founder exit stories, please subscribe to the Cashing Out podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please remember, ExitWise.com and the Cashing Out podcast are for entertainment purposes only. This should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions.